All right, so the passage that I am so excited for us to dive into together this morning and observe God's glory is Psalm 118. So if you would, turn, turn there in your Bibles. And we will read all of Psalm 118 in its entirety together. So once you have found that psalm, would you stand with me for the reading of Scripture? I'm going to ask that anywhere that you see the phrase, His steadfast love endures forever, that we would say those words together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Let's read 15 and 16 together. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Let's read verse 27 together. The Lord is God, and he has made his light shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, and I will extol you. Read together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures 
forever. Our Father, we are before you this morning, and I pray in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ, that your word would go forth with power. Father, you know my weakness. You know that I am insufficient for these things. But I pray that as we look into your scriptures together, the light of the glory of your gospel in the face of Jesus Christ would shine forth. Not unto us, O Lord. Not unto us, but unto your name give glory. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can be seated. What an amazing gift we have in the Psalms. I've loved so much over the past couple of years as a church body together, uh, learning some of the songs of the Psalter and singing those on Sunday morning. Uh, We even enjoyed uh, recently within our own small group being able to study the Psalms and sing them uh, together, which at first was maybe a little awkward, but um, became really, really special as we would would sit in our living rooms and sing through the Psalms. But they are precious. They are uniquely inspired expressions of worship that are intended to shape our emotions and our actions. And the psalm that we are considering together this morning, Psalm 118, for millennia has been tuning the hearts of God's people to sing his praise. May the Lord use it so in us this morning. So our text Psalm 118 is a a hymn that is part of a larger group of hymns or psalms known as the Egyptian Hallel. Hallel meaning praise. And they're called the Egyptian Hallel because they commemorate and celebrate the redemption of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And they celebrate also the promise of the coming redemption through Messiah. Now, throughout Israel's history, they came to be absolutely central in the liturgy of worship, especially around the three major worship festivals of Passover, of the Feast of Tabernacles, and of the Feast of Weeks. And they are read and sung uh, throughout those festivals, even to this day. Um, But in its original usage in its ancient context this psalm was a hymn of corporate worship written specifically for a a special day of temple worship most probably one of the national celebrations of the festival of the passover lamb like the ones that we see recorded in uh, the reigns of of hezekiah and josiah Uh, it's written as a processional Um, written by the king uh, to accompany the congregation of Israel as he would have led them to enter the gates of the temple, bringing their offerings of sacrificial Passover lambs into the temple courts, where they would then be welcomed by the priests and Levites serving there. Uh, Psalm 118 was originally, it would originally have been sung much like we just read it, as a call and response. Uh, With some passages sung by the processional leader or by the king, some by the priests and the Levites, and others by the whole congregation together. Um, You'll notice as we look through it, it is written primarily in the first person. And this song really captures so beautifully both, both the personal and the national or corporate scope of God's redemption. 
that he has saved a people group for himself whose individual names are written on his heart. The writer's song is both for himself and for the nation, telling his own story of God's saving mercy, which mirrors God's redemption of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. And all of this points to a greater redemption from sin that God would bring about through Christ, our Passover lamb. So as one commentator writes, the Exodus events stamp their likeness on all of God's redemptive works. So we see that very, very clearly in this Hallel song. As the author recounts his own story of redemption, Israel's story, and then leads the congregation to celebrate this feast of Passover. So the point of all of this, the author's goal behind the song is to awaken the hearts of God's people to acknowledge, to enjoy, and to declare his goodness on display in his steadfast love. This is the unified theme and the message of Psalm 118. And for those of you taking notes this morning, it is the one and only main point of this sermon. So you're welcome, or I'm sorry, depending on how you choose to look at it. So, so here it is, the one and only main point, and it is that the goodness of God on display in his love must be acknowledged, enjoyed, and declared by his people. And this unified theme of thankful worship to God for his steadfast love is, is developed and it is illustrated and unfolded through several unique passages within this, this hymn. Uh, really, in much the same way that each verse of one of our modern hymns of worship really develops that main theme and presents it that is presented in the, in the chorus of the song. So we're going to look at each of these individual passages, um, and even though we only have one main point, uh, there are actually seven supporting points that we're going to take from these unique parts of the hymn, and uh, I'm, we're going to call them chorus one, verses one through five, and the final chorus. Um, I think if Bible publishers are allowed to insert these imaginary chapters and verses, then we should be allowed to to call uh, verses and choruses within this psalm. So um, the first passage we're going to look at um, uh, is verses 1 through 4. So this is chorus 1, and it is an earnest call to thankful praise. Look down at verses 1 through 4 together. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. This hymn of praise begins and ends with this line. And it permeates with meaning everything in between. It's like the chorus of the song that really highlights the the main theme and the main focus. Um, So, Andrew, this is our biblical justification for starting songs with the chorus. So, it's right there. 
Um, uh, this is known, this phrase at the beginning and end of the psalm, as the todah, or the thanksgiving. And it was actually ancient, probably when this song was written. It is reprised throughout David's songs. Um, this is the song that the Levites sang as they went out before Jehoshaphat's army. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And it was the song of worship at the dedication of the temple when the blazing brightness of the glory of God filled the Holy of Holies. So it begins with this call. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. This idea of thanks or thanksgiving has really suffered in our modern culture. We use it so lightly that we hardly seem to know what it really means anymore. Um, but thankfully, in this text, we can find a biblical understanding of thanksgiving in the specific words used. Uh, so the, the Hebrew word here for give thanks is do, And it means to acknowledge, to rightly value. It's actually spelled with two Hebrew letters, one that symbolizes a hand, and the other symbolizes upward motion. So the most literal meaning is to emphatically acknowledge in praise with the motion of the hand, and it carries this idea of first rightly valuing, and then acknowledging, and then confessing and declaring all that God is for us. So this heart cry of thanksgiving contains within it both an invitation and an imperative. It is an invitation in the sense that what it calls us to, to give thanks to the Lord, to behold God and to worship him for who he reveals himself to be, is the most supremely satisfying thing that we can ever do. It is an invitation to do what we were created for, to worship and to enjoy God. But it is more than an invitation. Because the word invitation really implies that the activity we're being called to is optional. Like, you know, hey, it would be really great if you did this, or not, you, you do you. Um, this is not like that. It is not a suggestion. It is a command. In the Hebrew text, what we translate here as, oh, give thanks to, is, is actually in an imperative tense that indicates causal action. And so the most literal sense uh, of this text would be, you must cause to be thanked Yahweh. We as God's people have an obligation to actively contribute to his receiving the thankful praise that he is due and what the psalmist wants us to see about God here is that he not only deserves, but demands a thankful response, one that acknowledges and enjoys and declares who he is. So now we've seen the call to give thanks. Here's what you must do. Um, and what follows is the why, what motivates our thanksgiving. And so look again in verse 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. So here's another word that we've, we've kind of ruined 
uh, unfortunately. We tend to use good synonymously with mediocre. You know, you've got good, better, best. And nothing could be further from the biblical meaning of this word here. The word here means beautiful, pleasant, satisfying, and pure. And where we see it applied to God, it is often connected with his compassion, with his kindness, and his mercy. It is the same word that was, that was used, that God used, to describe his creation when he saw that it was very good. His creation was called good because it was a reflection of him. God, in his essence, is good. He defines good. And the psalmist is telling us in this verse that his goodness is seen in all the satisfying beauty of his steadfast love. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. So some of your Bibles uh, here will, will probably read his loving kindness endures forever, or his faithful love endures forever, his mercy, his devoted love. And all of these descriptions are an attempt on the part of Bible translators to really capture the multifaceted richness of the meaning found in God's chesed, his covenant love for those whom he has redeemed. We could spend a series of sermons unpacking all that chesed means, but for our purposes this morning, what we may understand it to mean is the eternally enduring mercy and kindness of God's covenant love to his people. And what we can see here in verse 1 is that this chesed, God's covenant love to his people, reveals the beauty of his goodness. Let's continue reading in verses 2 through 4. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. This let implies fittingness or rightness. Let this happen because it is what should rightfully happen. The goodness of God on display in his love must be acknowledged and rejoiced in and declared by his people. In other words, all of God's people redeemed must confess his eternally enduring love because none can deny it. No one can stand up and say, God has failed to, failed to be faithful to me. No one can say, I trusted him and he did not prove true to his word. His steadfast love endures forever. And there's such a conviction, such an earnest desire in this, this heart cry call, oh, give thanks to the Lord. Such jealousy for God to receive the glory due to his name. Now this kind of thankful heart that seeks to enlarge itself by including others in its worship is the mark of one who has truly known God's steadfast love and mercy. 
So the hymn writer himself, this song leader of the procession, acknowledges and rejoices in and declares God's steadfast love, and it is exactly what he proceeds to do throughout the rest of this song. So let's continue looking at what we will call stanza two um, in the following verses, a testimony of deliverance. Let's look down at verse five. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. Out of my distress. So this word is, is actually only used in two other places in the scriptures. Of the two, one in Lamentations describes the affliction of bondage and slavery. And the other, only two psalms before this, in Psalm 116, also a Hallel psalm, it describes the cords of death and the terrors of hell. The psalmist's distress that he called to God out of was one of bondage, enslavement in the power and the terrors of death. This picture is one of, of utter hopelessness. So to Israel, this would clearly have pointed back to their bondage in Egypt. But there is another bondage which I believe the psalmist has an eye to here, and a greater deliverance which our New Testament perspective reveals to us, a bondage which we all have known, and that some here today are still in. The bondage and slavery to sin. I had the opportunity a couple of weeks ago to, to share the gospel with a man. Uh, his name was Ty. And Ty was one of the lowest, the most broken and tragic people I have ever met. Um, and for two hours, we sat on a park bench together, and I sought to share with him who Jesus was to me, how he had saved me out of my distress. Um, I gave him a, a, a gospel of John, and after those two hours, he, he looked me in the eyes and he said, look, I appreciate you giving me this, but you need to understand, this isn't going to work for me. He said, I want nothing to do with your Jesus. He said, there are two deaths. One is the death that I am living now, and the second is the death that I don't need to fear. And he said some other things that I, I, I shouldn't share, but I was, I was sorrowful in leaving him. He shook my hand and said, hey man, don't worry. Don't worry about it. It's going to be okay. And as I walked away, I thought, no, it is not going to be okay for you. On the day of judgment, unless God works a miracle in your heart, he will say to you, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And you will be cast into outer darkness. And you will find out that death is not what you think it is. Now, the truth is, Ty's story, in considering it as I left, I thought, there but for the grace of God go I. I may not be a drug-addicted occultist, but I am no less a sinner. 
and I was no less an enemy of God and no less hopeless. And had God not reached down in his kindness and mercy and his steadfast love, I would never have called on him. Out of my distress, because of God's steadfast love and mercy, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The problem is that we forget that. We who are saved by his steadfast love all too often fail to remember the bondage and the terrors of death that we were saved out of. This is my story. If you are in Christ, it is your story too. Remember. Remember and let your heart be awakened to acknowledge, to enjoy, and to declare the goodness of God on display in his steadfast love towards you. You, believer, must give thanks for this. Let's continue reading in verse 6. And notice the contrast here. What a difference has happened. In in verse 6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The psalmist's experience of deliverance leads to a declaration of theological truth here. He's saying, here is what I have learned about God that you should know. In verses 8 and 9, it is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. The implication being here that he's saying, I tried. I trusted in man. I trusted in the deceitfulness of man's ability, and it led me to the grave. It is better to take refuge in God. Let's continue reading in verses 10 through 12. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. So here, a lot is is different about this story. He's telling this story of God's redemption in taking him out of his distress in setting him free. He is now at his right hand, and he says, the nations surround me. He's speaking in a, in a metaphorical sense. The language here is, is figurative, that all, and all nations literally means the entire world is coming against him. But there's a difference. Whereas before, he was in distress and in the terror of de- death because of his enemies, now he's saying, if it is the whole world against me plus God, I like those odds. I'm good with that. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What an amazing love. And it must be thanked. So in the next section, or in the next stanza, um, we see the steadfast love of God declared through 
a song of salvation. Look down at verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. My Lashuach from Yeshuach. Glad songs of Yeshuach are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So here in this passage, the hymn writer is actually quoting a much older song that would have been a a well-known song to his audience. So, I mean, if Chris Tomlin is allowed to do it, then I guess it's okay here. So this is taken directly from Moses' song of deliverance in Exodus 15. Like we said earlier, we see these, these events of Exodus stamped throughout all of God's redemptive works. So the, the, the song leader is, is shifting gears in this verse. He's going from you know, his, his original lyrics to, to the verse that everybody knows. And you can sort of feel the excitement of the Hallel escalating as this procession nears the Temple Mount and then the whole congregation joins to sing glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And to really get the sense of what is happening here, I want us to to take note of something in the poetry of this text. So where English poetry um, really relies on on rhyming words, Hebrew poetry uh, relies on the parallel of thought. And so where in the Psalms you see the same thought rephrased or repeated, the meaning is to to amplify and emphasize the truth of of that truth, of that thought. So with each restatement here, it is compounding the one before. So if something in the Psalms especially is repeated once, then that's a really big deal. If it's repeated a second time, then that's like, we, we have pulled, off, pulled all the stops out. We, are, we just hit the key change of in Christ alone and we're blowing out the windows. This is exciting. This is a big deal. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So part of the reason that this song, uh, or this group of songs, the Halal, became so important to worship in Israel is that the people recognized within it these messianic themes, that it was pointing forward to the promised king who was to come, the Messiah. Um, And throughout the Old Testament, this phrase, the right hand of the Lord, was used to refer to this Messiah king. And they they knew that, they recognized that. Um, And so this song, coming from the that is said to come from the tents of the righteous, so this is a militaristic scene, is really a battle taunt to Israel's enemies. They are saying, the king is on our side. You guys don't stand a chance. They are acknowledging and enjoying and declaring the steadfast love of God displayed in the Messiah. So from here, the, the next stanza of our song is found in uh, verses 17 through 24. And there are really two significant portions 
uh, of this stanza. Um, I'd like to go ahead and read verses 18 through, or rather verses 17 through 20. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. So at this point, um, the procession has arrived at the Temple Mount. And you'll notice in verses 19 and 20, we read, first, the gates, plural, of righteousness. And in verse 20, we have the singular gate. So why why the difference? Um, From what we understand about the, the temple complex layout through archaeological findings and just other ancient writings, is that a procession of this size, a national procession, would have come up to enter the temple complex through the south, through the south gate. And back in, uh, in 1866, officers of the British Royal uh, Engineers were, were granted special access to the Temple Mount by the Islamic authorities um, to an area along the southern wall that archaeologists to this day have not been able to, to get back to. And there they uncovered within the Temple Mount, behind layers and layers of old rock, these beautifully arched and pillared gates, a double gate on the south side. Open to me the gates of righteousness. So as these worshipers make their way through the vaulted passages of this temple complex and across the outer courtyard, they would then have come up to a giant single entryway, 15 feet across and 30 foot high, a door made of solid Corinthian bronze that in Solomon's temple would have been covered in gold. So this was the final and only passageway into the temple court itself where the altar stood. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I I find it really cool and exciting to to see these sort of real-life details that connect to to the story, but what really is truly amazing is the spiritual reality that these things point to. Two. See, this gate is a symbol. Just like the temple and the sacrifices were symbols themselves that point to the deeper spiritual truth of God's salvation through the coming Messiah. These gates, this, this hymn writer says, are the gates of righteousness that only the righteous may enter through. They represent means of access into God's holy presence, communion with him, and a right standing before him. And the the hymn writer certainly does not take his own fitness to enter these gates for granted, because just before this, in verse 17 and 18, he has acknowledged the height of his own sinfulness and guilt before God. You have disciplined me severely. And he acknowledges the fact that God in his mercy has not 
delivered him to death. Basically, God, you could have given me over to death for my sin, and you would have been just to do so. But because of your mercy, you gave me life instead and have made me fit to come into your presence. In the light of this, the hymn writer's words here, these are the gates of righteousness. Only the righteous may enter and then open them to me is in fact a profound statement of faith in the promises of God. He knew, these Old Testament saints knew that it was not according to their own worthiness or righteousness. His confidence was on the basis of God's faithful chesed love relationship with him. It was God's promise he was trusting in. Salvation by faith. By faith, the gate of righteousness is open to all of God's blood-bought people. And even though these Old Testament saints did not know exactly how this redemption was going to take place, they were trusting in God's promise. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. And then in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the gate. He has opened the way. And so the verse that follows this is really the, the first prayer that you see in this psalm. These are the first words that are addressed directly to God himself, and they were a shout of thankful praise that this group of people, that this congregation would have sung as they pass through the gate into the presence of God. Verse 21, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. So again, this is, this is lifted directly from that song of Moses in Exodus 15, verse 2. He says, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So later on in that ancient song, there's another tie-in with, with this Psalm 118. In verse 13 of Exodus 15, it says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed, and you have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. These Exodus events are stamped on God's work of redemption throughout history. And what an incredible goodness of God is on display here. In his steadfast love that provides a way for his people to be accepted through faith. And this goodness must be acknowledged. It must be enjoyed. And it must be declared. So let's continue reading this joyful assurance of faith uh, through this second section in verses 22 and 23. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. 
So one of the things that we want to be mindful of when we come to these Old Testament scriptures, uh, especially for those uh, with this New Testament perspective who know that this points to Jesus Christ, is that before we jump to our New Testament understanding, we want to discover as much as we can about what this would have meant to the original audience, um, to the people who were singing this 700 years before Jesus Christ was born, although they, they did not know its full significance, it had meaning to them. Um, so a few years ago, uh, Tally and I and uh, my father-in-law, George Decker, were able to go to, to Israel together on a trip with a group from Countryside Church. And one of, the, uh, one of the most incredible things that we got to do while we were there was to go through the Western Wall tunnels, where these excavations that were actually done by that same British group of guys in the late 1800s who found the, the double gates in the South Wall, um, exposed the, the lower foundations of the Western Wall of the temple. And so as we're going through this tunnel, um, it's, I mean, it's dark and it's cold and it's um, just very Indiana Jones-like. <laughs> our, sorry, I shouldn't have. Um, our tour guide points, points to this, this rock, this single solid stone in this lowest course of the foundation that is 44 feet in length, 15 feet high. And they've done uh, sonar readings on this, on this stone in the foundation of the temple and found that it is up to 15 feet deep and weighs over 560 tons. Our Jewish guide told us a story about this stone they call the Western Stone that has been handed down in oral tradition through the centuries. So when the Temple of Solomon was being built and all of these rocks had to be quarried and cut off-site and then brought to the temple construction site. One stone that was the largest stone ever cut from that quarry was brought to the temple site, and these architects and builders realized that it, it didn't fit into their blueprints. They didn't know what to do with it. And eventually, they rejected the stone, pushing it off of the temple mount construction site, and it lay in the Kidron Valley. Now, much later... Somehow, the stone was then hauled back up the mountain and placed at the head of a row of foundation stones known as the Great Course at the base of the Western Wall just below the Holy of Holies. So when Solomon's temple was destroyed in 587 B.C., this stone remained in place, and it later was used as the foundation stone of Ezra's temple after the return from the exile. In 70 AD, when the Roman general Titus Alexander besieged Jerusalem, he commanded his army to break down every stone of the temple. And when they came to this cornerstone, it broke them. They spent days and they could not make it budge. It remains there to this day, and one day when the temple is rebuilt, its walls will be raised on the foundation of this stone. Now, this may be the original audience's understanding in part of what is being spoken about here in the cornerstone. 
These Old Testament worshipers would have known this story. The stone would likely have been right there as they entered the courts of the temple. You couldn't miss it. But they celebrated it not because of what it was, but because of what it pointed to. They recognized the spiritual reality of this stone, and it is what God said in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 16. Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be shaken. So they sang, this is God's doing, and it is marvelous in our sight because they understood that the foundation God had laid in Zion was the foundation that was laid for their faith in his word, in his name, and in his promise of salvation through the coming king. This is marvelous in our eyes. It is God's doing. These Old Testament saints were amazed at the display of God's steadfast love. How much more should we be amazed who have the full story, who know the steadfast love of God in making His Son the cornerstone of our faith? When Jesus presented Himself in Jerusalem at Passover, before He went to the cross, He looked the corrupt religious elites who had rejected Him square in the eyes, and said, I am the cornerstone. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. In Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, Peter and John are, are before the council of the Sanhedrin, and they declare, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Verse 24 of Psalm 118 expresses what ought to be our response in light of this. Look down at verse 24. This is the day that the Lord has made, this day of salvation. When the Son of God became the foundation that was laid for our faith, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Let us acknowledge and rejoice in and declare the goodness of God on display in his steadfast love towards us. So in verses 25 through 29, we come to the final verse and chorus of this hymn of thankfulness. And it is a picture of redemption. The culmination of this festival procession, the culmination of this song, and the final crescendo comes with the slaying of the Passover lambs before the altar in the temple. So as this festival procession has arrived at the temple and the, the heads of the households then bring in their paschal lambs, these spotless lambs, in verse 25, we read what would have been the prayer of dedication before these ritual sacrifices took place. Look down in verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Then in verse 26, 
the priests and the Levites sing, welcoming the king, the leader of the procession. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then to the congregation they sing, we bless you from the house of the Lord. The people respond in verse 27 with this confession of faith. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. Basically, make ready the sacrifices to be slain. So we have spoken a lot to this point about what this hymn would have meant to its, to its original audience. But as we mentioned at the beginning, this Psalm 118, along with the other hymns of the Hallel over the centuries, would become more and more important to the worship of God's people until by the time of, of Christ, it was absolutely central to these festival celebra- celebrations and absolutely central to the week of Passover. And in many ways, in the gospel accounts, we see it central to the gospel itself. It comes up many times in those final days leading up to the cross. We see that in verse 25, the people were crying out as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, mounted on a, on a colt. Ho'oshiana, save now. Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So they are hailing him, welcoming him as the, as the king, although they did not understand that the deliverance he had come to provide would not be from the power of Rome, but from the power of sin and death itself. So it, it was also the custom of the women who baked the matzah bread for the Seder to, to sing this hallel while they are baking this, this bread for this celebration. And we know that the Levites would stand in the temple and chant it over and over and over while the Passover lambs were being sacrificed and their blood thrown against the altar. And we also have records which tell us records from the time of Christ that show every family as they celebrated the Passover Seder sang this Hallel as part of that meal and they would end the meal with Psalm 118. Which means that the hymn we are told that Christ and his disciples sang together after they celebrated the Lord's Supper and before he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane, was almost certainly Psalm 118. So meditate on this. The song of worship that was on our Lord's lips before he went to the cross was, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. The all-satisfying beauty of the goodness of God on display in his steadfast love at the cross must be acknowledged. It must be rejoiced in. And it must be declared. He looked upon our helpless state. And for the glory of his name, the steadfast love of God held firm. So while the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple, and while blood poured down like rivers from the foot of the altar, and while the Levites were singing over and over again, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. On a hill outside Jerusalem, hanging from a criminal's cross, the Lamb of God was slain to take away the sins of the world. And when he said, it is finished, the veil was torn in two, the way was made open, the gate of righteousness swung open wide for all who believe. And on the third day, when the stone rolled away from the door and Jesus walked out of the grave, his victory over sin and death and hell became mine and became yours if you are in him through faith. He has become our salvation. And glad songs of Yeshua are in the tents of the righteousness. Hallelujah. The goodness of God is on display in his love, and it must be thanked. It must be thanked. I know there are some here this morning for whom this is a hard saying. It's difficult right now for you to be thankful. It may be a struggle for you to say, this is the day the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. If you are here this morning and you are assaulted by fear or borne down by sorrow, if all of your sins accuse you and the steadfast love of God seems distant and unreal, first, you must repent of your thanklessness. Ask God's forgiveness. Ask him to help your unbelief to give you the eyes of faith, and then look to the cross. See your sins nailed there. Look to Jesus, your Passover lamb, who bore the full penalty of God's wrath so that you could be forgiven. And keep looking until the Spirit of God bears in upon your heart the truth of his steadfast love for you. There are some here also this morning who have no experience of any of this kind of joy or thankfulness or love in Christ because you have never come to know him as your Savior. You have never repented of your sins and turned to him in faith. If you are not in Christ, then you are in bondage to sin. And the good news is that if you will call on him for deliverance, turn from your sin, and put your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, 
you will be saved. And you will know the steadfast love and the goodness of our God to all God's people, redeemed by his blood, to all who fear the Lord, to the church. Let our hearts be awakened to acknowledge and to enjoy and to declare the goodness of God on display in his steadfast love so that we can say with the psalmist, look down in verses 28 through 29, you are my God and I will give thanks to you. You are my God and I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. Our Father, we are humbled in your presence. Your love is beyond anything we may comprehend. How high the cost that was paid so that we could be saved. And we thank you that you have become our salvation. You have become our Jesus, our Passover lamb, our deliverer. I pray that you would awaken within our hearts a spirit of thankfulness for all that you are. We ask it in the precious and holy name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.